Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. I don't know if you guys remember, but a number of years ago, there was a, it came out on, on DVDs, so that, I just dated myself. Um, and then Blu-ray eventually picked it up, which just made it look better, but there was a show called Planet Earth, and it, you can watch it on Netflix and all the different platforms, and I don't know if you remember when you first watched that. I remember the anticipation behind it. There was such excitement around this series coming out about Planet Earth, but it wasn't like any other natural documentary done. It was, it was groundbreaking. It was so groundbreaking because of the quality of cameras, storytelling, and the ability to interweave it all together. And the thing that really stood out to me was it was an incredible way to look at the complexities of how nature works. And when you look at the designs of God, when you look at what he designed and who he designed and the people sitting next to us and the moment we step outside, we're again confronted with this reality of this world that he created for us to live in. And the world isn't just there. It's actually sustaining life. It's creating life and it's perpetuating life. And it would be so It would be so human of us to want to make it so simple, but what we realize as we learn more and more about the creation of God, as we learn more about the complexities of it, we begin to realize this is very complex. Everything that we see and hear is incredibly complex. But thankfully and fortunately, because of technology and science, has advanced so much, we are now starting to understand the nuances and the complexities and how, how my knee works alone. It's just this joint, but we don't understand. But now we understand the, the complexity of all the parts to a knee. When you think about the knee alone, it's a remarkable invention God created. I, I, don't, I don't even know if you've ever thought of that, but that's one joint you don't want to have is the knee. Then you look at the ankle, the ability of what the ankle, I mean, God created these complex things that seem to be so simple, but yet they're so complex. So this whole idea of technology and science is actually helping us to understand this complex world that we live in and our desire for health and to eat well and to be active and be healthy is culturally at a very high point right now. And that's evidenced by the Apple watches you're wearing on your wrist. Uh, some of you wearing rings on your finger that are telling everything about your body. And we have Fitbits on our wrist, and we geek out on knowing what our heart rate is at any moment. What's your heart rate today? This is my heart rate. When I talk to you, it goes up. You create anxiety in my life. I mean, we have the ability, <laughs> we have the ability to tell that kind of data real time. It's actually quite fascinating. And, There's a whole nother wave of data that's related to your sleep. My daughter, she has one of those rings and she wakes up in the morning and she says, oh, my sleep rate was really low last night. I'm like, okay, what do you do with that information? I mean, it's not like you go to bed wanting to not sleep well. So it's not like that was an attempt. And I don't know about you. When I wake up, I can tell if I slept well or not. 
Uh, but we like to know this data. We live in a day and age, there's so much data, but what is it doing? It's actually taking the very complex things and making it very, very simple for us to understand. It's, it's actually fascinating. I grew up in a home that was very much health and fitness. The latest diet fad went through my house. My, my parents implemented them whenever they came through. The latest workout fad was something that my parents were definitely doing, and they were part of a gym, and the name of the gym was Mountain Gym. Really creative. I mean, it's just one of those really groundbreaking names of a, a gym. We lived in the mountains, so I wonder how hard that was to name that gym. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I am always asking this question, who decided to name their business that? Uh, I'm always like, I, wanna, I wish I was a fly on the wall in the boardroom or the meeting room when they decided to name the business that. Because some of them are just like, I don't understand it. For example, I'm just, locally, there's one called Food Lion. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Food Lion. And I'm like, I wonder what that meeting was like. Like, did somebody say, hey, we should name a grocery store Food. Great, great idea. And someone said, Lion. I think, there it is, there's our brand, Food Lion. And it obviously has worked, and it's, it's everywhere. But I'm so intrigued. Maybe you're not like me, but I'm always thinking about who makes these kinds of decisions to name something that. And I'm totally off track right now, but I just wanted to give you a sneak peek into my mind. My mind is very active in this area of my life. And, but from a young age, my parents were invested in health and fitness. And when I came of age, I joined the mountain gym. And what I learned is there's a beautiful community of people. It was my parents' third place. It was the place outside of the context of church where they just did life with people. And I quickly became part of that community. And it became our place we went to minimum three days a week, sometimes twice a day, just to work out. It became like this, this place. And it was, it was really fun. And I, we joined the gym. It became our third place. And then but there's something fascinating about this is we humans are always on this search for that diet. And we're always on that search for that one workout that solves it all. It's what's beautiful about us, but it's also kind of the funny part about it because I think we've learned there isn't one workout that fixes it all. There isn't one diet that cures all of our health issues. If that were the case, we would still be doing South Beach diets. We still be doing uh, Weight Watchers. How about a Mediterranean diet? Did anybody here remember the Mediterranean diet? Some of you, and how many are still doing it? Case proven. How about the Aitken diet? The Aitken, paleo. Did anybody enter the raw food diet? And some of you probably still are, because it's rather still kind of new. And my mom was a major raw food fanatic. And my mom helped lots of people in this area of their life. And see, there's all these diets. And how about the carnivore diet? Did anybody in here like the carnivore diet? Yeah, it's usually, okay, we got some ladies too. I like that. But what we have to understand is those diets only help to focus on one thing, but they don't often provide everything else that we actually need. How about the different workout fads over the years? Here's a couple, Bowflex. Anybody remember Bowflex? <laughs> How many bought a Bowflex machine? Yep, a few of you. And it's dusty right now. How about Tai Bo? Anybody remember Tai Bo? 
my wife was so into Taibo, and she would just be punching and she'd be demonstrating on me. I said, honey, I love your technique, but I don't trust your depth perception. I'm afraid you're gonna, it's gonna be a little too close. How about Thigh Master? Anybody remember Thigh Master? Remember that thing? Aerobics. How about Sweatin' to Oldie by Richard Simmons? Did anybody, did anybody still do that? Exactly. How about Nordic Track? Nordic Track. My grandfather, who's passed away now, but he, he religiously did his Nordic Track every day. And some of you are like, what is Nordic Track? It was this machine that was pretty much metal and wood, and it was wood skis. And you basically were cross-country skiing in your living room in one place with wooden skis. And my grandfather was religious. Every day he did that, and he swore by it. He was Mr. Nordic Track. How about We Fit? How many flat screens? I know the hands are getting younger as I go through this list. How many flat screens were ruined as a result of We Fit? And how about uh, Pilates? Any Pilates people in here? Pilates, okay. How about yoga? Anybody into yoga around here? Okay. All right. How about um, soul cycling or spinning classes? Yeah, and in CrossFit, that's kind of the biggest, latest one, CrossFit. So I've, I've only mentioned the journey of health in our body, but what I want to understand is we do the same when it comes to the health of our spirit. We do the same when it comes to the health of our soul. This is what we do is we, are, we aren't just one-dimensional beings. We actually have, we're multidimensional. And there's a verse in Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 that says this, and the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Sanctify you wholly, that may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible or your app, I'd like for you to open up the John chapter 4. There are a small set of verses in there that we're going to spend most of our time unpacking and extrapolating tonight. And it's actually sitting in the middle of a really beautiful story of, of an interaction between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. And I realize many of you are familiar with this passage. And before you jump to remembering the whole story, I want you to stay with me on these few verses. But because we are human, and we have this insatiable desire to find the Holy Grail. We want to find that one method, that one idea that solves it all. And I, and I love that. It, it, it's a beautiful part of us, but I also think there's something that we can learn from this. I would like to suggest there isn't one key, but rather learning to create a symbiotic relationship with multiple keys and ideas that actually help you to become whole. So in John chapter 4, we're going to jump right into the middle of the story, and it's in verse 31, and it reads this. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. We're going to take a moment and just kind of take a few phrases, but this is a very... Um, I think some of us have read this before. We've kind of just read over this to get to the other part of the story. But I believe what Jesus is demonstrating actually explains the story. It explains this conversation that he has with this Samaritan woman at the well. 
And although that's the story, I believe this actually explained the story, but actually reveals another principle in the kingdom that I want to share with you tonight, that I believe is something that if it's not in place tonight, I hope that you would implement it in your own life tonight. But he makes a statement. He said, food to eat of which you do not know. Now, I don't consider myself a foodie. If my budget was a lot larger, then perhaps I would be a foodie. Uh, And if you don't know what a foodie is, foodie is the kind of person that organizes their life around restaurants. They organize their vacations around specific places to eat. Are there any foodies in this room right now? Greenville is actually creating foodies. Shay in the back stood up with two arms. We have a foodie in the back. And foodies, like, they, they're going somewhere, and if there's a restaurant that's two hours off the route, they will go there. And so this is what a foodie does. And I've had the privilege of going to some really great restaurants. And it's really amazing when you go into these high-end restaurants. And sometimes it's not the most expensive. They're just, they've done such a good job. And you taste this food, and you're like, where has this been my whole life? I didn't know this existed. I didn't know that this and this and this could create a flavor that I have never tasted before. And that's the power of food. And I don't know if you've ever watched Chef's Table, but it's probably my favorite TV series ever is on Netflix. It's six seasons. I've watched them all. And I have a note on my phone of all the restaurants that I plan to go to by the time I say my last whatever. I want to go. And the problem is my budget doesn't quite help me or afford me the ability to go. So if any of you are feeling generous <laughs> and you're going to any of these restaurants, please feel free to invite me. And I, I, I probably will not turn you down. But Jesus makes this comment. He says, food to eat of which you do not know. So what we learn here, Jesus is actually operating in a certain dimension while his disciples are living in another dimension. He said, I have food of which you do not know. So what is he saying? He's about to tell us there's another dimension of nutrition. There's another dimension of nourishment. There's another dimension of being sustained. And you don't even know what it is. And then he goes on and he says this. Had anyone brought, and the disciples said, had anyone brought him anything to eat? So the disciples are still thinking in a natural dimension. Has he already eaten? And we have the advantage of looking at it from a historical context. We obviously know that he's not talking about food. But imagine the disciples in that moment going, we're deeply confused. Did you already eat? What are you talking about? And so in verse 34, in the first part of verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So he said, there's food you do not know. There's nutrition. There's sustainment that actually you're not even aware of. And then he said, my food, so this thing that nourishes me, this thing that sustains me, is actually doing the will of my Father who sent me. Let's take a little look at the word will. There's a, the Greek word for will actually had a multiple, same definition, but multiple expressions of it. It means an act of will. It means will. It means wishes and desires. It also means the will of God. It also can go as far as sometimes as a will to be recognized and sometimes as a will to be obeyed. The Geneva Bible has a note on verse 34. It says this, there's nothing that I hunger for more or wherein I take greater pleasure. So what is Jesus saying? There's food you don't even know about. And that food is to do the will of him who sent me. 
And the very end of verse 34 is the last statement Jesus makes. And he said, and to finish his work. This is a very powerful moment here. I'm going to pause on these thoughts, and now I want to go back into the story to give a little bit of context for these four verses that we just read. Let's go to the beginning of chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 3, and then I'm going to briefly tell the story that takes place. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed, make a note of that, he needed to go through Samaria. Pause right there. So Jesus is leaving an area, and you can read verse, verses 1 and 2 to know, learn why, but he's leaving an area, and he had to get to another area. And the route for Jewish people on that day was to go around a territory that was called Samaria. This is where the Samaritans, and you know that Jesus had other stories about Samaritans. And he made this, he made this decision. He said, I need to go through Samaria. Now, it's hard for us today to understand why was it a big deal for Jews to enter into the land of Samaria. Modern scholars would tell us it would be similar to the tension that exists between the Shiite Muslims and the Sunni Muslims. And the Jews in Samaria had one of their biggest disagreements, and it actually stemmed all the way back from the time of David and Solomon. So this goes back hundreds of years. So you can imagine the hundred years of tension is now in a place in Jesus' era that scholars tell us that Jews hated Samaritans. This is the intensity of this relationship. And one of the biggest points of disagreement was, where does God reside and where can we worship him? There are other multiple points, but the main point was that. And the Jews believed that you, God lived on Mount Zion, and that's where you worship him. And the Samaritans believed that God lived on Mount Gerizim, and that's where you worship him. So Jesus decides to go into a foreign territory with a people group that his people group hates. So imagine the disciples in this moment like, okay, here we go. This is about to get adventurous. So they go into this area, but what we learn is that Jesus places himself in a new environment, and it is there the will of the Father is revealed. This is what I want you to get. First point of tonight is this. Sometimes we don't know what God is doing because we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's the same drive to work. It's the same people I hang out with. It's the same restaurant I go to. It's the same gym I go to, and everything's the same. Sometimes you just need to go to where you're going in a different way. I tell people all the time, like, if you drive to work the same way every day, tomorrow, take the longer route. Just leave 10 minutes early and take a longer. It's amazing what happens in these moments when you change the scenery. And Jesus decides to change the scenery. He said, we're going through the shortcut. I know there's a longer way, and that's the proper Jewish custom to go this route, but I want to go here. And because he went into this space, he ended up at a well. This was no ordinary well. This was the well that Jacob built. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, the fathers of the faith are considered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This goes way back. And Jacob, as a father in the faith, built this well, and Jesus ended up at it. You can't help but wonder the strategy in Jesus' mind, like, I'm going to this well. I'm going to go back to a place that the Samaritans revere as a very special place. And he goes there, and he's thirsty. 
And meanwhile, his disciples go into the city. So Jesus is sitting by this well. And, and along comes this woman. And there's a lot of different theories around this woman, but I'll keep it very simple for tonight. And she shows up at the well at a time of day that they say is not a normal time to go. And she shows up at the well, and, and Jesus looks at her and says, hey, I'm thirsty. Can I get some water? So Jesus is a Jew, and this is the Samaritan woman. Their people groups hate each other. Their tension that goes back hundreds of years. And the cultural custom of men talking to women was, was frowned upon, especially with the people group your people hate. So Jesus is breaking all the rules, foreign territory, just breaking down all the rules. And he asked, can I have a drink? And she said, why are you talking to me? I'm a woman. And he keeps the conversation about water. I mean, Jesus is pretty smart. He just keeps it about water. And she said, I've been coming to this well, and I'm still thirsty. You're thirsty. And Jesus said, if you know, if you knew I have water, or there is water, that if you take a drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Again, Jesus is always introducing another dimension in the midst of dimension that we all live in. And she goes, what is this water? And she, she begins to explain this water. And then the discussion changes, and Jesus said, hey, go get me your husband. Bring your husband here. And she said, um, well, and Jesus goes, oh, that's right. You've had five, and you're currently living with another man right now. And she takes that, and she goes, are you a prophet? And then she goes into, are you a prophet? And then she begins to go into the, the theological disagreement that they have. Our people say we worship here, and your people say we worship there. So she goes from, oh, you're a prophet? Now I'm going to debate you theologically. Or at least get clarity. And Jesus said, hey, just by the way, FYI, that disagreement will no longer be relevant in a very short amount of time. Because there's coming a day, it doesn't matter where you worship, but you'll be able to worship in spirit and in truth. So there's this, and she began to, she began to get shot. And Jesus said, she talked about meeting the Messiah. There's someone coming named the Messiah. And Jesus said, hey, you're talking to him. She puts her water pot down. Imagine that all her existential questions are standing in front of her. The answers to every question she's ever had is standing in front of her. She puts her water pot down. She goes into the city. And while she goes, the disciples are coming out, and they ask the question, hey, Rabbi, you need to eat. And he said, oh, I have a food you do not know about. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. And the next set of verses, Jesus said, the harvest is right here. He said, who will be laborers in this harvest? And what Jesus is doing, he's describing something I want you to get tonight. He's describing a source of nutrition that does not involve rest. He invites us into a dimension of reality that you can be nourished you can be replenished, you can be sustained, and it's not rest. So I want to propose to you, and, and as of late, there's been a, an immense amount of conversation in Christian circles around the topic of the Sabbath. I'm so grateful for the content that's out there, the book that I've been written, the, the messages, the teachings, and social media content that emphasizes the value of the Sabbath. And I believe it was so instrumental for it to emerge in our day and age, specifically in the last five years, it's become a major, major emphasis. And you have to ask the question, why? 
For one, it was lost. We forgot. We forgot that the Sabbath is actually necessary. It's something that God built into the DNA of how we function. And when you disregard that, you pay the price for it in other areas of your life. And so I'm grateful. But I also want to say this, as much emphasis as we put on rest and Sabbath, there should be equal emphasis on work. There should be equal emphasis on actually doing the work that pleases God to be a part of what he's doing in the earth. So this story, Jesus said, oh, there's food that you don't even know about. And what is it? It's to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And in this moment, Jesus did not have to plant the seed, did not have to water the seed. All he had to do was harvest it. And then he goes on to describe the disciples. There are people that have done all the work before you ever existed, but because you're here, you get to take advantage of the harvest time. There are part of the kingdom framework of reaching humanity is you're part of loosening the jar. You're part of the one that plants the seed. You're the one that, you're not getting harvest, but you're the one just watering that seed. And then someone someday will come along and go, oh, this is time for harvest. This is where Jesus actually talks about. So I want to tell you, part of the kingdom is some of you are planting seeds. Some of you are just simply watering. And some of you are harvesting. But be prepared for all three. Be prepared to be the one that plants seeds. Be prepared to be the one that waters and be prepared to be the one that harvests. And Jesus said, this is a source of nutrition. So this isn't the latest fat or latest diet. We have to learn as followers to create a symbiotic relationship with all these principles in the kingdom. And the challenge we have as humans, we want the Holy Grail. This is why there's so much tension in the Bible. I don't know if you've read the Bible recently, but there's a lot of tension in it. One verse says this, and the other verse said the opposite of that. In fact, Jesus said the opposite of what he said earlier. There's a moment where he says, hey, you better pray. Like, you better cry out. You better be on your face crying out. And then another verse, he's like, don't even pray for the things that you need. Don't even worry about it. And the challenge we have, we want the Holy Grail. So like, any, many, miny, mo. okay, this is the one. And we latch onto it. And usually the one we pick is the one that's the most relevant one to us in that moment in our life. And so what happens is, specifically related to prayer, we say, oh, we got to be crying out to God. Because look, Jesus said it. The Bible talked about it. And we build an entire city around this thing. We build entire theology, doctrine, and practices, and we build a lifestyle around this. The challenge is there are times where Jesus says, don't pray. And the challenge, I've seen it in my course of my entire life. I've seen people camp around and we pray all night long. And then when someone doesn't pray, we accuse them of being the wrong. Problem is that person is over here going, well, Jesus said I don't need to pray, so I'm not going to pray. So now we've created infighting in a body that's actually meant to build a symbiotic relationship between this truth and that truth. And all the truths in between. And all we want as humans, like, what's right and what's wrong? We're like, just give me the Holy Grail. What is that one way to do it? What's that one birth that solved it all? I have news for you. There is no one birth that solved it all. 
is learning to develop an ability to live with the symbiotic reality of the dimension of the truth that Jesus teaches on. We have people that love to fast. They're anti-feasters. And honestly, to be honest with you, that contingency is a very small contingency. Most believers are like, man, I'm a feaster. I am, especially in the South, we like our comfort food in here, this space. And we're like, we're feasting. We don't need to fast. And they're like, well, the Bible says to fast. And we go, you know why? It's because Jesus said, if I'm with you, you don't need to feast. And he is with me all the time. <laughs> Some of you laugh, but that is literally a biblical foundation that feasters live off of. The challenge is we're supposed to feast and we're supposed to fast. Challenges, we're like, well, which one is it? It's both. It's both. How do you deal with people in sin? Do you call them out or do you walk with them? And this is the challenge. Like, just tell me which one is it? There's sin in here. We got to deal with this sin. Absolutely. Never want to diminish the reality of sin. But it's proven when you look at the life of Jesus, there were times where he called it out and there were other times he walked with them. But if you are unwilling to embrace the paradox, if you're unwilling to embrace the tension, then you will always pick one over the other. And the greatest truth that you can get in this entire tension I'm talking about is if you embrace the tension, you'll start hearing God say, come closer. I want to build a relationship with you. So you will learn the nuance. Are you fasting or are you feasting? Are you praying or you're not praying? Are you resting or are you working? So learning to develop a symbiotic reality is key to following Jesus. So why don't you stand? Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week and we'll see you soon.